KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. A dip in ICU bed capacity triggers San Diego's stay-at-home order. Where a number of new requirements went into effect in two regions in the state. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Maintaining hospital capacity is primary for San Diego County. Uh, if you overwhelm your, your health care system, you're, you're put into a, a number of devastatingly bad choices. And some excerpts from the KPBS Community Forum on keeping our democracy. People don't trust that the information that they're being given is in fact true. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. As of midnight last night, San Diego is officially under the state's new stay-at-home order. Most non-essential businesses have been ordered closed, with retail stores subject to stricter restrictions and restaurants limited to takeout and delivery only. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento spoke with San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher about what the shutdown means to San Diego. Supervisor Fletcher, I want to start with the basics of the shutdown. What should people know? What do the stay-at-home orders require? What's open? What's closed? Well, in essence, I, I think we've seen our cases go from 200 a day to 2,000 a day, a tenfold increase, a quadrupling in hospitalizations. And so we're in the unfortunate situation uh, of once again having to take action similar to what we did in March, similar to what we did in July, uh, to limit the highest risk settings and, and limit the interaction or mixing of folks. Um, and so we're back to a lot of personal care services, hair salons, uh, nail, barber shops, things like that being closed, uh, restaurants being limited to takeout or delivery uh, or pickup only, um, and, and a just a series of, of modifications, again, not dissimilar from what we've done before, that are designed to one more time help us beat this thing back while we await a vaccine. There has been some confusion about what's open and what's closed. So what are you still waiting um, for the state to clarify? Well, we're working to get some clarification around limited services, that's things like plumbing, things like that, to get some clarification on that. Um, and a number of us are advocating the playgrounds uh, should be allowed to be open. I understand completely the desire to uh, not have households and individuals mixing. Uh, but for families who have kids that are learning from home, that neighborhood playground really is a lifeline to uh, get your kids out and get them some exercise. And so we're we're advocating for a couple modifications and changes. But I think in large part, 
Uh, we generally know what the next three to four weeks uh, will look like. And now we just have to uh, get about one more time knocking this thing back. The state says the Southern California region's remaining ICU capacity is 10.9% as of today. What can you tell us about the plans for if and when ICU bed capacity is reached here in San Diego County or in other parts of the Southern California region? Well, this really is the concern. Uh, it, it's not necessarily where ICU capacity is today. It's the significant increase we're seeing in ICU utilization from COVID patients. The other thing that I think is really important is a problem that we did not necessarily have in March and April, and that is a problem with staff. Uh, I speak to multiple hospital systems daily. Uh, who are very concerned about the availability of ICU nurses. You have burnout, you have fatigue, uh, you have a lot of traveling nurses that are in other parts of the country, and then you have a lot of healthcare workers who are getting infected. And so we're working to really try and understand what is the actual ICU capacity today in terms of a bed that could be staffed. Um, and then that is why we're taking these actions. We have got to slow the spread uh, and stop the injection of new ICU patients or slow it, not stop it, slow it. Uh, to a point where we can manage the uh, the overall system capacity and ensure the integrity of our healthcare system. Are you concerned that there will come a time when there are more people who need critical care than we have capacity and even more so than we have staff? Well, that's the nightmare scenario, and that's what we've been trying to avoid all the way since March, uh, is slow the spread to ensure the integrity of our healthcare system. Uh, if you overwhelm your, your healthcare system, you're, you're put into a, a number of devastatingly bad choices around crisis care, who gets a bed, you know, someone that's in a car accident not having a place to go. Uh, I believe that if we can all take action consistent with what we did when we went in the purple tier a few weeks ago, consistent with the new regional stay-at-home orders, uh, I believe we can slow this spread to try and mitigate and potentially get through this. Uh, but it's really important the public understand that, that prevention means you have to take action before your hospital system is overwhelmed. And that's why we're taking the really challenging actions we're taking now. It's not easy. We're not suggesting it is, but we do see what's on the horizon and we're trying to get on a different trajectory. If we do have more ICU availability compared to other counties, even with changing how we count, will the county be receiving patients from elsewhere? How is the sharing of the patient load going to work? Well, the Emergency Medical Services Act, EMSA, outlines the the regions, it outlines the distribution, the nature, and, and we have throughout this pandemic uh, been uh, willing to take uh, patients from other regions, whether it be Imperial, primarily Imperial, um, and they would be willing to take our patients uh, if we if we had capacity. And it's it's very similar to what we do in fire season, where firefighters will go from one region to another to support each other through a process of mutual aid. And so the hospitals have in place systems and processes they follow to transport and assess what's happening. Uh, but that is the interconnected nature of, of our healthcare system. And Again, something if we are ever in need of help and assistance, we will be really glad it exists. Enforcement is a critical piece of ensuring success of this lockdown to slow the infection rate. What grade would you give the county so far in its ability to effectively enforce COVID-19 orders? Well, it took a while to get there. The county as a public health agency uh, has limited ability to actually do enforcement. We can serve cease and desist or public health closure notices, but it takes law enforcement being willing to issue the citations and then the district attorney or city attorney, depending upon the jurisdiction, to be willing to uh, enforce those through the courts. Uh, we recently did get the sheriff came around and was willing to dedicate sheriff's deputies that could go with our public health teams to issue citations. And he made the commitment that they would be willing to do that in any jurisdiction uh, in San Diego County. The DA and city attorney both assigned prosecutors from their offices to the team. And so I think we are in a better position in place. 
But as a county government, we have been limited in, in what we have the, the statutory authority to do. We need that cooperation from law enforcement and from the prosecutorial side. Uh, and I think we now have a good system in place, but it certainly took a while to get there. What resources from the state are coming to San Diego? You know, the governor just mentioned that the state is asking for help from the federal government on staffing. The UT reported this morning that the National Guard already helped at two local nursing facilities. What more are we expecting and what more do we need? Well, we're going to keep pushing to get everything we can. In the early days of this, we obviously had field hospitals that we were ready to set up and deploy. Uh, the real challenge is, is in order to increase healthcare system capacity, we call it the three S's. You need a structure you need stuff and you need staffing. Uh, the structures are pretty easy to find. That's not the problem. And even the stuff, the bed or the x-ray machines or the, the components uh, are, are generally available. It is staffing and staffing is, is a critical component. You have a lot of staff burned out, fatigued, tired, deployed to other parts of the country where the situation is much more dire. Uh, and then a significant number of staff are becoming ill themselves or having to quarantine or isolate. And so we will work with the state and the federal government and anyone uh, to get every resource that we possibly can. Uh, again, while hoping that the actions we're taking uh, can help us stabilize our numbers and avert the crisis of overwhelming our system. Supervisor Fletcher, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. A fundamental part of maintaining our democracy is for citizens to have faith in it. That has been eroding among sections of the public. Last week, KPBS conducted a community forum on the subject, Keeping Our Democracy, What Now? The virtual event was hosted by Mark Sauer of the KPBS Roundtable and featured guests Dr. Legina Goss, a UCSD assistant professor of political science, and Dr. Carl Luna, Mesa College political science professor and director of the Institute for Civil Civic Engagement. They tackled the difficult questions such as, what can we as Americans do to agree on what we stand for and shore up our democracy? Here's part one of that discussion. Carl, let's start with you on this one. Attempts to disenfranchise voters were widespread in 2020, as were attempts to subvert the results. With the election processes controlled by states and counties, how do we ensure fair elections in the future, and how do we ensure that everyone believes their vote will count? You know, Tom, that, excuse me, Mark, that, that's an incredible issue that we have to deal with, because in this election right now, there's 40 to 50 million Americans who don't think it was a fair election. I don't know how much of that is lip service because their side lost or how much of that is a really gut felt. Had the election gone the other way, if Joe Biden had lost to the Electoral College, we've seen the same thing occurring. Uh, what we need to do from, from top to bottom is first start 
re-educating Americans about how the system works. I was thinking uh, uh, Michael Vu, our registrar, worked so hard to really get out to the, to the, the community how they were doing this process with the thousands of people involved and how fraud on a meaningful scale is just not possible. I was thinking maybe they need to put together like a little animated, like a health ed class movie like we saw back when we were kids just to show this is your ballot and this is what will happen to it. Because when people don't know how the system works, they are prone to all the disinformation. And uh, Legina, you take on this one. Sure. I want to start by talking about uh, the first part of your comment about how disenfranchisement, a lot of efforts to keep people from voting in this election, um, were, was a pretty big conversation this year. And, uh, and it's true. There was a lot of attempts. There was a lot of court cases, a lot of challenges to try to make it more difficult for certain people to vote. Um, but also, I don't think those uh, attempts are really new. And also, and even more importantly, uh, this was probably one of the most secure elections we had in a really long time. Even recently this week, we had the uh, Department of Justice talk about how secure this election was. And hopefully him saying that, right, being someone who is uh, in, in the executive branch or, uh, from the uh, Trump administration might convince people that the elections were in fact fair. But as Carl just said, a lot of people may not believe it just because uh, they didn't win the election, kind of a, a sore loser scenario. But another scenario is that uh, partisanship was in general de uh, determined a lot of people's understanding of what was going on in this election. And maybe if we remove partisanship from the equation, uh, that could help improve people's uh, understanding or faith in the election electoral process, right? So if you think about it in most states, elections are administered by people who are elected to office based on their partisanship or elected officials appoint them. So state secretaries of states or um, state legislators that draw congressional districts. Uh, and perhaps if uh, those administrators or people who decided the way elections would take place were nonpartisan or even better, were multi or bipartisan, then people would have faith that their interests were represented in the way that the elections took place. And this could also increase trust because a lot of times there's lots of research that shows that uh, people don't really trust politicians from the other side or even better, they're more likely to trust the people that they elect into office, even if they're doing the same things that someone else might have been doing. Criticism is leveraged more often on people uh, who aren't elected by individuals, right? So uh, perhaps if we increase the representation of people's partisan interests on the boards uh, and on the commissions and uh, in the uh, among the people who are actually deciding how elections are run, then people will have more faith. And I absolutely agree with Carl that transparency, transparency is also really important so that people understand how the process is taking place. But even with that, it seems that uh, people don't trust that the information that they're being given is in fact true uh, because of some of the things I just mentioned. Right. We're going to get back to that point in, in a bit in another question. Carl, I want to pick up before we leave this question on something uh, Legina just said, and that is about uh, how elections are run at the local level. Is it time to have these federal elections run by a federal commission that's bipartisan and take them away from these secretaries of state who might be a candidate and, and might actually run the state's electoral process? Yeah, Mark, I, th I think you've got a point there. Now, uh, as Legina pointed out, there's really two issues here. One is how do you count the votes? And I think you could get all the secretaries of state across the, the political parties 
all out there agreeing with a concerted campaign between now and 2024 to really argue to their partisans on both sides. The votes, once they're cast, are going to be fairly counted. It's really that first part, though, that Legina was pointing out, the attempt to keep voters from being able to vote with state election laws, which vary by state, how you get to register, how you get your ballot, you get to cast your ballot. That becomes the real issue. Uh, the voter fraud, if, if there is any, is the fraud of millions of voters who have a much harder time voting than they should. Now, what you need to do is to go to a national system, but we're a federal system. And given the way the Senate works, given the way the states preserve their own integrity, I think the better thing you might be able to do is just to vote out a big ton of money to the states to really run from the federal level, give them money to run really good elections, uh, and also give them some incentives to get the most people possible fairly and legitimately registered. Uh, time's going to change a lot of this anyways. Demographics in America switch. But in the short term, uh, you've got to be able to run elections with people have confidence in, and money could help that. And uh, Legina, just before we leave this one point, uh, Carl brought up a point that got me to thinking about the fraud that was ahead of the election. We had President Trump, and we'll get more into this later, was uh, was talking about it's going to be a fraudulent election. Even uh, Attorney General Barr was saying mail-in mail ballots are fraudulent on their nature. Did that kind of poison the well months before we even took the vote? Yeah, I think it was purposeful uh, in an attempt to poison the well. I think there were concerted efforts to make people have less faith in the election so that if the election didn't go in President Trump's way, that uh, he could leverage challenges and, and look legitimate in his efforts to do so. But also, I believe that uh, that's why it's necessary to kind of remove partisanship or add more partisanship into the ways that elections are structured so that one party can't only pursue electoral strategies that would allow them to win elections. All right, let's turn now to American racism. People of color, whether native born or immigrants, have always been subject to barriers, exclusion, indignities, hardships, and violence, blacks especially. What do we need to change socially and politically so that we, the people, means everyone? Regina, start us off on this one. Sure. Uh, I think one of the, the starting points is to think about what it means to be an American and what we, the people, mean. And there's research in political science and, and psychology that shows that when people are asked what American looks like, a lot of times it's white people. Uh, whether uh, they are American citizens or not, they're more likely to be considered American. And anyone who doesn't fit that image is given a lot more distrust. People don't believe them as often. They're thought of as uh, not as intelligent, not as trustworthy, not as honest, uh, just not as good, right? And so uh, this, colors a lot of interactions that occur. So a lot of conversations over the last several years have been uh, talking about policing, uh, but it also colors the way that prosecutors pursue cases, the way that jurors decide guilt or innocence, um, and even sentencing. Um, and then it's also in the way uh, that other types of institutions in society exist, as a way that teachers teach, social workers, uh, politicians. Uh, most of us have biases that are associated with this understanding of American equals white. I remember reading uh, the uh, Brown versus Board Education and, and they relied on this uh, study in psychology where they asked little children to think about uh, like what a good or a bad person was by giving them these dolls, right? And they were more likely to think a white doll was good 
and um, a black doll was bad. And that was regardless of the race of the children they were talking about. So these biases don't just exist among white people uh, and they don't exist among everyone, right? But there's a strong association that really colors the way that politics works, the way that society functions and the way that individual interact with each other. So the first step I believe in a dealing with American racism is to challenge these beliefs, right? And, and one way that we thought of a good way, I guess, was to do it was to think about colorblindness, which is uh, an attempt to see everyone as equal, which I think is maybe a misstep, right? Because if we uh, only look at people and assume that there are no differences, then we really dismissed a lot of the different lived experiences that you talked about, Mark, when, when posing this question, right? The fact that some people really do have different realities that make it more difficult for them to do things that make individualism uh, really difficult, right? So institutional racism that exists that really puts people at disadvantages. So before we address inequalities, we have to first acknowledge that they exist in the first place. We have to acknowledge that racism is a thing. And maybe the second step is to think about how we can challenge these through representation, right? If we put people in positions of power, authority that were particularly um, historically uh, held by uh, mostly white men, uh, then we can start challenging our beliefs about what it looks like to be a good person, smart, have good leadership, right? And uh, it's interesting that a lot of these conversations about representation uh, tend to uh, go into these conversations about identity politics, right? So because people question uh, people's abilities and their capabilities, uh, there's tends to be a greater scrutiny for people who aren't normally in these positions, right? So uh, if, if there's a woman or a person of color, a black person, uh, they're more likely to, to have their, uh, their record challenged more than if it was a white male, right? And uh, there's been a lot of conversations, even thinking about the previous elections, where if you look at Donald Trump's uh, qualifications before running for office compared to those of Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. Uh, he looks on paper a lot less qualified for office, but there were a lot less concerns that his election was just about identity, uh, when in a lot of ways it was, right? He, he represented an identity within society that people believe should be in those positions. Uh, and then um, there are also people who are concerned about identity politics because they think that having uh, I, I guess a symbolic or a token representative doesn't actually in, in, uh, lead to better policy or letters, better situations, uh, which could be true. But when you think about it, one person can never represent everyone. One person uh, can never truly uh, represent all interests, right? So uh, it's true that uh, uh, one person uh may not represent the entire group well, just because uh, the group is very diverse. And uh, we need many different types of representation and many different types of people to challenge this association that we the people only means white people, right? And, and so that means having black conservatives, having black liberals, having black people and a lot of different identities representing interests or representing uh, our, uh, our, our interest in government or, uh, showing up in uh, leadership roles and employment or even uh, on television to really challenge our associations about what it means to be American or what we the people should represent. Uh, and, and the last point I'll make on this is that 
we we can't really wait on a consensus to make change. A lot of times people have a challenge to to trying to uh, challenge racism by saying people aren't ready for it. But a lot of the, the times that we've had the most progress towards change has happened despite public opinion. So I don't think public opinion is the best way to think about ways towards uh, improving our representation or addressing racism, whether individual or systemic. All right, Carl, I want to give you a, a crack at this. Uh, President-elect Biden has a very diverse so far. We haven't seen certainly by any means, all of his appointments, but uh, it's looking a lot more like America, I think, uh, as his administration starts to take form. What's your take on this question? Well, and in saying that, Mark, that's what, how to say the scares part of the other side. Uh, it's not their America. You, know, you have a big hunk of America that lives in areas which are disproportionately white, rural areas that don't have a lot of uh, cultural diversity to them, and they have been led to associate their own economic decline over the last 30, 40 years with the fact that other people are now doing better. Uh, what do you do about this? Uh, I'll, I'll go back to Cindy Lauper, money changes everything. What you gotta do is get prosperity, widespread prosperity up. So the rising tide's going up. Once you have some people coming down, while uh, other people seem to be coming up, they get that correlation for going back to George Wallace, that because black workers were making more money for finally in the early 60s, white workers were losing money because of mechanization. It was affirmative action and all that was causing the problem, not globalization, not changes in the overall economy. I mean, I'm an Italian American. Here's the funny thing. We weren't white as a people until after World War II. When my father was in the deep south for the war, he was exposed to all kinds of prejudices against Italian-Americans, African-Americans. Remember, we only have Columbus Day because in the 1890s, a lynch mob lynched 11 Italian-American citizens for the, the death of a local sheriff, which they had nothing to do with. And the nation of Italy threatened war unless we did something. And that's how we discovered Italians and made them part of the narrative. You've got to bring in a narrative in which everybody's prospering, has some sense of common identity with, as Legina's saying, maintaining all the glorious differences we have, the food court model, but you still have everybody going to that food court and enjoying it. Uh, it's going to take a decade or two to dig ourselves out of the economic hole we have of economic prosperity only flowing upwards. Once you've got more of a widespread prosperity, hopefully by the end of the decade, uh, it's remarkable how a full stomach and happy uh, bank account can moderate some of these uh, issues over time, at least one would hope. Virginia, before we leave this question, I wanted to, to touch on something that Carl said, and that is um, when, when and how uh, will we ever see diversity as a, a strength, not a, uh, a threat to certain parts of uh, American society? Yeah, I do think a lot of it has to deal with uh, people's own uh, understanding of their economic situations, right? So uh, when people are are having less economic prosperity, they tend to challenge or scapegoat or blame, I guess, other people who aren't like them, right? So a lot of it is uh, in times of prosperity, it seems that uh, there's more community building and more uh, respect for differences. But when uh, there's uh, more, seems like there's more zero sum games, then that's when you do see a lot more conflict. Uh, and I mean, another way that it, there tends to be more, I guess, cohesion is in times of when there's a, a, a common enemy. So in times of war, uh, though, I, I don't think anyone is really advocating for uh, that type of event in order to bring people together. 
Well, we'll see what happens. Of course, we're all rooting for a, a cure. I hadn't thought of it till just now that the vaccine mm -hmm. may uh, help us in regards to race relations in addition to getting rid of this terrible virus, hopefully. Well, let's move on here. Uh, we're going to talk about facts versus disinformation. And central to the current division in American society is that facts are no longer regarded as truths by everyone. Science is disdained by millions. Bizarre conspiracy theories gain traction. Whether facts are acknowledged as true often depends on political belief these days. How can voters know which sources are reliable and what if they just don't care? Carl, I'll toss that to you to start with. All right. To know what sources are reliable, watch KPBS. Of there course. you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then watch Fox News and then watch MSNBC and then read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, sample a lot of different media. If all you ever get are things that agree with you, uh, you're watching the wrong stuff because nobody's right all of the time. Uh, if it challenges you, you, you got to buck up and face that and try to see why people may have different views than you. Now, that being said, most Americans don't spend their time watching NPR, KPBS, uh, reading the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. They're living their lives and they pick up stuff on the side. They get it off their, their, their Facebook and their social media streams. I swear, social media is the lead in our society's water today, like from ancient Rome. There is so much stuff which gets attention because, again, dog bites man, no story. Man bites dog, but man's part of the, the conspiracy to enslave children and steal an election, that gets all the attention. Uh, facts are often not as sexy as fiction, which is why we watch dramas. Uh, how you combat that, oh, well, you've got to start looking at things like the equal time law. Uh, if you're using broadcast bandwidth, that is a taxpayer, that is a public trust, you should have to use it properly. You are not allowed to pollute the waterways with, the, with chemicals. You shouldn't be able to pollute the bandwidth with things which simply aren't true. Drive it off to the sides of the discussion, not the centerpiece. I do not think it is a, a, a coincidence that about 30 some years after we got rid of the equal time rule, the rise of AM talk radio, that we're in the situation we are today because AM talk radio is not there to sell facts. It's there to sell my pillow. It's there to sell a whole bunch of products and you get those products sold by just being outrageous. Gina, a um, point I wanted to uh, pick up on was one thing Carl had said, and that is you take these crazy theories. QAnon's a perfect example, but there's a number of them now. This whole fraud in the election we were talking about. It used to be fringe stuff at the edges, and now it's really uh, front and center. We can't agree on, on facts. we got a crisis, a health public health crisis here. Certain per a percentage of the population thinks it's a hoax yet. Climate change, another a perfect one. It's a hoax. The scientists, the facts are overwhelming worldwide from scientists in the know. Uh, what, what do we do to combat this? Yeah, I think Carl is absolutely right that a diversity of information sources is really important. One, one problem, uh, he, he blames social media, but I think the reason social media uh, kind of gives people the news they want is because people want the news that they want, right? They want information that confirms things that seems to fit in their understanding of the world. And anything that doesn't fit with that, they discount it. They don't, they don't necessarily, or we don't necessarily uh, want to challenge things or, or our understandings of the world. Uh, so when coming across information, uh, even in this world where we might only get things that we agree with, uh, the first thing I think is really important to do is look at the source of that information to understand what the qualification that individual or that, that institution has to, to make the claim 
and then figure out how they got to their conclusions, what their evidence is, what their experiences are, how those led, and then find other people uh, from different sources, different types of uh, experiences and see if they, they believe the same thing. If everyone's saying the same thing, but they're all the same type of person, then maybe the information isn't correct. Uh, but uh, the other part that you just mentioned is uh, this uh, concern about, uh, excuse me, the distrust of people that we don't uh, agree with, right? So it's, uh, and believing these conspiracy theories, right? And I think a lot of that is motivated. I just read this article recently on meta perceptions, which is basically about how when someone looks at another group who isn't like them, they tend to overly uh, have over perceptions of that group's negativity about them, right? So uh, if I'm a Democrat, I think Republicans dislike me a lot more than Republicans actually do. And, and that makes you not want to listen to what they have to say because uh, no one wants to talk to someone who doesn't like them or, or is always telling them that what they think is false, right? So maybe one step towards helping people agree on facts and and, agree and and believe less these conspiracy theories is to really get over or find a way around these misperceptions that people have about uh, people with views who are, are different from them, right? So not necessarily finding common ground on the issues, but co finding common ground on our mutual respect for each other, our understandings of us, or, of, of, of people who aren't like us, uh, because it's, it seems a lot of that might be motivated by just over, uh, because of the hurt and pain from, from difficult conversations that I have in the past, uh, adding extra negativity to the way that uh, they may think of me as an individual. Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe one of the first step or a, a, a crucial step is really dealing with the way that people uh, relate to each other more so than trying to, uh, or in addition to trying to address how people understand facts. Uh, Carl, I want to pick up on the uh, the whole idea and the notion of uh, gullibility. You know, the old idea that uh, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. You've got to show me. I'm skeptical. Uh, people seem to just swallow things whole that you just say it and say, let's see, we're you know, top Democrats, celebrities are, are stealing children and, and cannibalizing them. That's at the heart of the QAnon theory. We've got members of Congress now who uh, embrace that theory. How did this happen? Well, in part, I think it's because, you know, we, the, uh, the, the experts, have kind of betrayed the other 80% of the society. Top 20% of America has been doing pretty good the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and the experts come up with ideas of how to keep things going. And the macro economy is looking good. The overall system seems to be working, but a lot of people are simply being left behind or having a hard time moving forward. I mean, I was supposed to have my Buck Rogers jetpack by now. Science solved the easy stuff in the 20th century when it took care of things like antibiotics, refrigeration, and we doubled the lifespan. The last 30 years, science is now up against things like the big C, cancer, and it's taking longer to get a payback. So a lot of people are saying, look, my standard of living is stagnant, or a bunch of Americans are dying younger than they used to. Our life expectancy actually went down in the double aughts, for heaven's sakes. That being the case, they say, well, science isn't helping me. So at least I can believe in theories that make me feel good if science can't deliver. What you need to do, again, I hate to keep harping on it, but get people's quality of life up by finding the ways that we can improve health care, we can improve economic productivity, and keep a handful of people 
uh, my peeps and above. Uh, top 1% takes the big hunk. Top 20% takes what's left and not much goes to the bottom 40%. How we reach that sort of social justice is going to be predicated on how we organize our overall economy. Even with COVID, you've got cause and effect. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. I got sick. I still believe it's a hoax. Yeah. And I think maybe one of the issues is calling it gullibility, right? I think we're all in these information chambers where the people we're around are all saying the same things, right? So we may look at someone and say, like, where did you get this from? This came out of nowhere. I know no one who believes that where they're looking at us to say, like, everybody I know is saying the same thing, right? So why are you kind of calling me, like, I guess, gullible, right? And and that's where it's really important to try to to diversify our information sources, but also to not, I guess, uh, blame people or scapegoat people for the misinformation that they do believe and, and, and do better at trying to build trust so that when people do receive information, they're not just thinking that the person who's sharing it is, is trying to get over on them or trying to manipulate them into thinking things that aren't aligning with their understanding of the world and understanding of all the people who are they relate with on a daily basis. All like right. In there, Mark, just real quickly. Sure. The saddest thing I heard all this terrible long year is the story of people that are dying in places like South Dakota, North Dakota, in COVID wards, denying with their last breath that they have COVID because their whole worldview is on the verge of being shattered in their last moments. We need to get that out as ads to people. I mean, we're a society of marketers. Market the truth. Science has to learn to do a better job of marketing the truth. Academics have to. Uh, because if we think people are just going to listen to us because of the degrees, that day is long past. All right, let's move to another question here. We've got one from Kathy Dunn, a nurse. Um, sad question, really. I personally have been so disappointed in and lost, lost my faith, the basic goodness of the American people. How can we move beyond this in 2021 and beyond? I'm going to take a guess here and maybe think she's referring to the fact that uh, masks are such a proven and factual way to to knock down this virus and flatten the curb, as we hear about, and uh, so many people have politicized this, unfortunately. Regina, start with that one, and Carl weigh in on this as well. Sure. I mean, uh, we're, we are definitely kind of seeing the worst of humanity at the moment, it seems, right? The, the, distrust, the, the distrust, the last lack of coming together. Uh, and I think a lot of it is built out of anxiety. Uh, we're not used in modern society, society, we're not used to dealing with a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, concerns about where food's going to come from or shelter or uh, whether we can interact with our family members. And there's just been a lot of that over the last couple of decades, right? Uh, this this pandemic in itself is a culmination of like a, a, a long years of, of things that have really been affecting people. Uh, Carl's talking about the, the inequality that, it, that um, has happened, polarization over the same time period. Uh, but then this, these health crises uh, that keep coming up and, and people aren't really used to that. And so maybe a, a focus on uh, coping mechanisms and, and trying to, instead of our knee-jerk reactions to blaming people for, for issues, really trying to come together and address them as a community instead of just pointing fingers. Carl, your thoughts on that? Well, this is one of those cases, though, where the historical figure stands at the center of all this. Bottom line, if President Trump had worn a mask nine months ago and told everybody else to do it, 
uh, his party, everybody would have been wearing them and all the MAGA colors they could have had, and we wouldn't have this problem. What he did is not going to be judged well by history, but that's where we are. He politicized it. Some of his base wouldn't have liked it. They would have said, oh, that's, you know, my personal freedom. No, you don't have the freedom to give other people a disease. I don't have the freedom to drive 100 miles an hour on the freeway. I don't have the freedom to go out with COVID and breathe on you. We failed in that basic civics lesson in our schools for a couple of generations now that people think the me is important. Remember, there's no me in we the people. Uh, on the left, you're still going to have a problem when the vaccines do come out. Remember the anti-vaxxers, that's the other side on the left of QAnon on the right, and you're going to have 30% of the population that's not going to get vaccinations. I'm, I'm really fearful what's going to be required is a hard-learned lesson where we're going to lose a lot more people that shouldn't have died, and maybe at some point our humanity reasserts itself when enough of us have actually seen that suffering and go, what the hell were we thinking about? How can we be better? This is going to be the teachable moment of the next 20 years. All right, let's shift gears here. And this is kind of an encompassing question from Jenny Prisk. Uh, Jenny, if you're out there, I remember you well, worked over the years with you. I've lived in San Diego 37 years, currently live in New Zealand because of COVID. Are you studying other countries' media platforms to find good practices to emulate? Carl, start us off on that one. Um, what was the line from Admiral Stockwell? I'm out of ammunition on that one. Uh, <laughs> I have not really dug into, like, if you're talking about media platforms, I'm not quite sure what you I think mean. what she's saying is, are we seeing this kind of stuff that we're talking about, this this mistrust and, and fringe theories into the mainstream and all this stuff in other countries here, or are, you know, they have the internet, they have social media, or is it American phenomenon? Remember, New Zealand had a terrible mass shooting, Norway had a terrible mass shooting, and the alt-right uh, is a global phenomenon. Fascism and neo-fascism is going to be the biggest challenge is currently the biggest challenge to liberal democracies as we move in this century. These are people who are saying, I want to go back to a glorious past. I want an all-powerful state to protect me, and we'll throw everybody else under the bus. So these movements are not unique to the United States. You've got it in Canada. You've got it in Mexico, Brazil. Look at the number of strongmen, the number of populist demagogues that are on the rise. Uh, and China is mutating into more of a state capitalist uh, authoritarian Nazis, let's just call it a neo-nationalist sort of system. Uh, it's going to be a rough 2020s. I'll just be honest with that with everybody. The 2030s, 2040s, 2050s are going to get better, but we've dug ourselves into this hole over the last few decades, and it's going to take a decade of prosperity, of people trying to come together to solve problems, particularly with these huge pandemics we have, I, and this will not be the last pandemic, to be sure. That's the price of globalization. We're either going to come together as a planet or we're going to set ourselves back a century or two. And though it's interesting, the leader in New Zealand, you, you make that point, also was given great credit. Uh, the numbers there are very low. And she did what you were talking about that Trump failed to do, which was wear a mask, lead on this issue, have crackdowns and, and have a good campaign that people bought into. The same thing after the shooting there where they had, had some meaningful uh, gun control reform. Uh, we're going to, we only have a, a few minutes left here. So I want to move on to a, a question for Regina. Rodney W. asks, with the history of medical experiments performed on people of color in America, how do we reassure the people of color the vaccine is safe? Yeah, that's been a huge issue and a conversation that I've heard a lot. And it, and, it, and I think it also relates to something that Carl or reminded me, uh, something that Carl said reminded me is that uh, populism isn't 
just the thing on the right, right? We, uh, there's been this anti-establishment sentiment in a lot of different countries. And, and it uh, also deals with kind of people of color and the way they think about uh, uh, governments and, and also uh, the medical profession, right? So there, there's still this distrust of these institutions and uh, I, I also with how quickly the vaccine uh, came to place, there are a lot of people who are just really nervous uh, about uh, the implications of a vaccine. Uh, and a lot of it's just gonna take, some of it's gonna take some blind faith and then a lot of it's also gonna take our leaders really doing a better job of communicating, of uh, providing people better information when when they say things that are are not as well informed or, or aren't well researched or factual and, and really demonstrating doing things to demonstrate trust. And it's not gonna happen immediately, right? Trust is built over time and, and, and it's really gonna take a lot of time for people to have more faith. And, and, and unfortunately, because of the history of experimenting on people of color in the United States, uh, and even those populations would benefit the most for the pandemic because they've been affected more, uh, there is a lot of people who are just very nervous about uh, taking, a, taking a vaccine and it not actually uh, promising or delivering uh, what it's supposed to, or even uh, making things worse than they might already be right now. Carl, I wanna come back to you on this next question uh, from Sandy P. Any advice for having productive discussions with friends and family who are misinformed? Uh, avoid the issues they're misinformed at, develop trust with them and talk about things you can't agree with. And once you get people on a roll agreeing with you, it's easier to recircle back to some of the problem era, problematic areas. Bottom line, if you get into confrontation over these things, it's just not going to play out. It's kind of like over your Thanksgiving dinner uh, table. What, oh, oh, how do you talk about politics? You don't. You know, you, we're too divided right now as a society. It's We're going to need the next six months just to recover from the stress of COVID and the Trump years and the election and all the rest. Sometime spring, summer, fall, maybe then we can start going, hey, you know, look, People started to wear masks. COVID cases went down. Got the vaccine. People stopped dying. And then uh, what, what, did, what was the old line from Schopenhauer? Truth is first ridiculed, then violently suppressed, then it's accepted as intuitively obvious. Yet we need to get to the other side of this to get to the intuitive obviousness of the science. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.